0: Welcome to the Share Life podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to an episode of the Share Life podcast. I'm Jason Scott Montoya, and today we have a listen to learn episode. We're going to be diving into uh, developing Nepal's poorest and most remote villages into thriving communities. Today, we're here with Dan Maur. Dan, say hello. Oh, ho, howdy ho! <laughs> uh, Dan was connected to me by Denise Stilly, who we had on the podcast recently. Um, So definitely be sure to go check that out. Dan is the president and founder of Elevate Nepal. Um, His background is in business. He got a degree in business management and ended up doing a lot of construction work throughout his life and decided... uh, to take the plunge and go down the entrepreneurial route of starting a non-profit, not just any nonprofit, but an international non-profit. <laughs> so he wanted to go uh, go at it hard and take the most difficult challenge, and so he has done it. So he's going to tell us what he's learned and the experience he's had. So, Dan, tell us about, uh, you know, how did this all begin? I think uh, it was 2015. There was an earthquake in Nepal. Um, you had been involved at some point and decided to sort of shift gears. So tell us about that
1: origin story. Yep, you you got it, Jason. So my first trip to Nepal was actually in 2011. Um, I went over there mostly out of curiosity um, with a couple buddies. We ended up hiking to Mount Everest Base Camp, which took us a month. And then we ended up volunteering on farms for another two months, which was um, a great uh, immersion into the country. But I always wanted to do something with Nepal, um, thinking of like a cultural immersion or ecotourism type of program, but could never really get it moving. And, you know, life kind of moves like this at yeah. times. Um, but 2015, as you mentioned, um, Nepal got hit by a big earthquake, actually two of them back to back. They registered over seven on the Richter scale. Both, um, both so-
0: of them were seven. And yep. what period of time were they, uh, what span between them? Two
1: weeks apart. Wow. So one hit, I believe the first one was a seven six, and then that ripped uh, kind of center of the country and that went to the east. And kind of when that one stopped two weeks later, a massive aftershock, which was the second earthquake, continued moving to the east mm-hmm. and kind of, um, you know, did, did more damage. But and is between... this an area that gets a lot of earthquakes or is this rare for them? Very common. Very, very mm-hmm. common um so you have your, ge- your geography lesson you have india which is slamming into that tibetan plateau and that's what creates the himalayas
0: mm-hmm. and <laughs> um, how so for people that may not be familiar with nepal is like we we probably know it even if we don't know it so kind of help us understand what is this place that's pinned between india and tibet <laughs> sure
1: um most people know nepal because of mount everest Tallest Mm -hmm. mountain on Earth sits right between the uh, China and Nepal border. Uh, It's a landlocked country. Um, So to the north is China and you have this massive uh, uh, barrier called the tallest mountains on Earth, the Himalayas, and then their other border is India to the south a very underdeveloped nation these are always changing but um i believe it was last year nepal ranked 197 on the human development index of, of of close to 298 countries um so human development index looks at um education health and then the infrastructure that is um in the country so yeah. a very underdeveloped very poor um and in the other side of the world
0: <laughs> yeah So what's the state of um, – the earthquake hits in 2015. What's the state of things, and and what does the earthquake change
1: or exaggerate? Yeah, earthquake killed 9,000, injured 22,000. But the biggest number is it destroyed a million structures nationwide. Um, Wow. You know, very rudimentary building. Uh, techniques where most things are made out of of stone in mud. So with all of those structures collapsed, the biggest thing people really needed immediately following the quake was just shelter. Um, Mm. So we that was one of the main things we did i got into katmandu a few weeks after the quake and reconnected with an old friend and he him and his team had been scouting areas and they were like people the main thing people need is tin so we we ended up distributing i think it was like five thousand pieces of that corrugated metal um just so they could build some structures to live in as temporary structures yeah um Thinking that, so, were, were you, know, you
0: there when the earthquake happened?
1: I was not. No, I was okay. here. I was here in the states. Okay, so you you went over there right after then? Yeah, short shortly after. This was even before we were a nonprofit. I did a a, a private fundraiser on CrowdRise, and yeah. I mean, looking back <laughs> how naive I was. I showed up with I think seven thousand dollars in my pocket, like, "Whoa, I'm here to rebuild Nepal." <laughs> <laughs> But so, it got you started
0: uh, at least, you know, right?
1: Yeah, that was that was the seed that really planted that shifted everything. Yeah. So, you know, back to what I started with a cultural immersion or ecotourism program. Once we did that and we were quite effective in in getting some of the this aid out to people, I thought, well, that was good. And, you know, what else can we do? And then that yeah. is what really built Elevate Nepal.
0: Mm. So you officially uh, formed the Elevate Nepal in 2017. So what happens between this earthquake and uh, 2017? Are you simply doing what you're describing or or were there more to it than that?
1: Yeah, you know, um, getting registered as a nonprofit, figuring out the governance and, and kind of what needs to be done to do this, um, staying in touch with people in Nepal and establishing more contacts but it was very interesting what was happening in nepal between you know the end of 15 and when i returned in early 17 so what is that about a year 18 months or something the rebuild efforts were absolutely stagnant um Hmm. revisiting those villages that we gave tin to people to build a temporary structure two years later they were still living in those um just because the aid distribution was so so slow coming from um a variety of sources
0: yeah and now your your construction background how did that help or hinder you um and and in terms of this new rebuilding
1: great (laughs) question um knowing how to swing a hammer was helpful (laughs) Um, taking any sort of uh Thinking that we have in the West, you really have to go back to the basics just because they don't have the building material or the tools or um just even the access to get to these areas so thinking something as simple like, oh, we can prefabricate all these pieces in Kathmandu, the city, and bring them out to the village it's just nothing works like that, so you really kind of had to return to the basics, but a big thing I learned too is we have to listen to the local people, um, you know, they've mm. been living in these areas for multiple generations. They know what works and what doesn't work. Our main thing was providing the resources with um, knowledge of, you know, can we bring tie beams together to make sure that everything is interlocked if we do have another shake? Can we um, support with more money so we can buy better building material? So it was it was really, uh, really interesting. And kind of moving forward is that's why I always work with Nepali engineers and local builders because they know what's readily available instead of someone coming from the west. Mm.
0: Was that something you were naturally inclined to do, or did you have to learn that the hard way in terms of listening to the locals and not doing it your own way?
1: Um, that was definitely a learning a learning thing. Um, yeah, but we learned we learned pretty early on, which was good. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And were they receptive to the help or how how did the sort of cultural and language barriers play a a role or did they cause uh, any kind of tension or challenges?
1: Yeah, just, you know, there's always challenges with cultures and uh, languages coming together. Things get lost and lost in translation, as I say. But every community that I've worked with has been very receptive to, um, you know, working with us. I think the most important thing that you need to do as an international nonprofit that I see a disconnect um, in, a, in a lot of different ways there is you have to build that relationship. With the local community. And as Mm -hmm. I say, you have to listen to them. Um, This is going to guarantee the success of whatever project you're doing, because it's their communities, it's they know what they need, they know what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, we're just helping with knowledge and resources, um, usually in the uh, you know, financial contributions, but connecting everybody with the population being served, local community, the, what the government can offer and then what a nonprofit will, that just takes time. Um yeah. but it's so, so important to build those relationships so everybody it's all transparent with your donors and, and and the community and that you're just effective. That's that's the most important. Yeah,
0: yeah. So rewind for us a bit. Um just help us understand how Nepal kind of ended up in this situation where an earthquake like this would devastate the country. You know, what's the history of Nepal as a nation and why isn't it part of China or India too, you know, versus kind of its own thing. And then how did it become so poor and, and broken?
1: Good, uh, good question. Um, How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, again, like I said, it was a, it's a landlocked country, um, very, very diverse in terms of ethnicity. So you have a hundred and, they just upped it. There's 141 different caste systems or tribes in Nepal, all speaking their own tribal language. So Mm -hmm. if you look at the Himalayas, um, you know, you have your flatlands, you have your middle belt, then you have the high mountains. You had people moving across there from, like, Myanmar, uh, also people coming in from, like, Afghanistan, and then you had um, uh, Hindu people coming up out of the south, out of India, and then other people coming across Mongolia, across that Tibetan plateau, and then uh, everybody kind of meshing in the middle Mm -hmm. of uh, the, the Himalayas. So once borders were a lot of people were nomadic and would move with the seasons or hunters and gatherers. But once borders were established and land and territories um, established, people kind of got trapped in their in their zones. Um, Mm. So some of that also stripped people of uh, cultures and identities and their inability to do um, their nomadic lifestyle. Um, So, yeah, that that's. But, but it's such an interesting thing because it's still so rich in culture. You have one hundred and forty two different castes or tribes. um and they could one could sit on one hillside speaking their language, and then on the next hillside it's complete different language and cultures and food and yeah. traditions. um but they don't communicate with each other yeah. at times. Um yeah, it's so fascinating. Ha-
0: well. It with the caste system is that uh, religiously driven or is it something else? And and then if there are different tradition, religious traditions intersecting,
1: how are how does it play out in that sense? So it's my understanding the caste system, uh, to kind of form the society of Nepal, came from. Um, India came from a Hindu system, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a caste system in Hinduism. So the Nepal government, which was a monarchy at the time, kind of adopted that system to um, categorize people. Um, So caste kind of is used interchangeably with tribe. But there Mm. is still a bit of a hierarchy that does happen in Nepal. So someone of a certain caste or tribe, let's say, um, if they're considered a a higher caste, they usually um, reside in the cities where they have access to education and um, better facilities. A lower caste tribe usually stays out in the villages and has more of a traditional type of lifestyle.
0: So they're more rural in that sense. Yeah. And um, okay. so and. Um, so you have this, this diverse mix of people from different countries and different places. I mean, how
1: do they talk to each other if they, if the language is so fragmented? So Nepali is the base language. So that's, you know, the international language, but you do get to a lot of places, especially in the urban areas or sorry, rural areas, um, where people won't speak Nepali, um, but it's not uncommon for a Nepali person to speak four or five different languages. So you'll, you know, Nepali is kind of the base, but they might speak their tribal language amongst their family and their community. But then when an outsider or a different caste comes, then Nepali is, is your kind of base. Um,
0: and is Nepali very, related
1: to another language or is it its own thing? It's its own thing, but it's probably closely, most closely associated with a uh, Hindu
0: okay so its origins uh, are probably from 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 india then it sounds
1: like yeah like some of the words are I- I interchangeable um yeah just so
0: why why was... is nepal not just a, a state in india then why is it it's, how
1: did it get separated or how did it become it, its own thing once once it was established it was its own kingdom it was its own mm-hmm. um monarchy um for for years the the silk road one of the main trade routes was through the Kathmandu valley um you know uh, coming okay. up out of india and then to other parts of asia i don't know the year but they found an easier route uh, around around the himalayas through sikkim or sikkim okay. which is which is a territory in uh india um uh, but okay. that kind of developed the kathmandu valley with mm. merchants and trade people and um you know it was a, it was a it was a pass through um uh, but okay. then you know, a monarchy till early 2000s. And then everything kind of changed, changed after that. But Nepal prides itself on, it was never colonized. So, Mm -hmm. you know, colonization, which however you want to think about it, um, whether it be bad or good, it does leave behind a lot of things in terms of the infrastructure and and educational Mm -hmm. structures. Um, But Nepal never really had that. They did have a lot of influence from the East uh, British company out of India, but they were never um, colonized. So it kind of also explains the state of why Nepal is the way it is now, along with, um, you know, the geography being so dramatic and then all these different tribes. So it's really, Jason, it's things like I've been working in and out of there for 12 years and some days I get it and other days I got no idea what's going on. (laughs) Well, what what is the...
0: Yeah, well what is it about the local people and culture that doesn't that that they lack something that creates the type of infrastructure that you're talking about? Like what is it that that drives that or that they're missing or or maybe it's something else altogether? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um lack of planning? Um, Mm -hmm. probably at the government level, I have to be a little bit careful how I say this. Um, uh, but just not having access to those resources and then the knowledge, you know, still very, very isolated these communities. Um, just for example, most of the places we work in don't have the big six that I talk about. There's no road access. There's no water. There's no electricity. There's no toilets. There's no school and there's no health post. So, um, you know, if you look at, say, we want to build a school, um, but some places there's no road access where you might be walking two to three days just to access um, that village. So how are you going to start to build things if, if you can't even get building material in there that needs to be flown in by a helicopter, which is kind of a new technology for Nepal or all carried? So that just limits you in, in terms of the actual development of a place
0: and so that sounds like a big part of the problem is that people live so far apart and they're in the mountain and it's 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 fragmented in its geography as well as its as, as well as the people being spread out and there's just the difficulty of the geography it sounds like it's a big part of that
1: yeah i remember after the quake the un the director of the un he got on and he was talking about how difficult it's going to be to distribute aid in Nepal versus other places, just based on that fact that you mentioned the geography. Um, Again, villages that were completely flattened, um, you know, reduced to rubble, and you had a high death count. Um, but these are three days walk from any sort of uh, facilities. It's like how, and that's a dime a dozen, you know, it's like, how do we get aid into these places?
0: Yeah. And it sounds, I mean, I'd imagine when the earthquake happened, it was months and he maybe even years before some of those villages even got any help, right?
1: It, it's true. When I went back to visit those villages, as I said, you know, two years later, people still living in those structures, um, 2018 is when things started to really kick off in terms of aid, aid money being distributed for, um, for the people, which was good. But, you know, almost three years of, of no efforts or, or no, no plan. Um, it was, that was tough.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you have, um, you have the geography challenges, you have the lack of infrastructure and systems. What, um, what about the, is, is any of it related to, um, people's choices as far as it could either be leadership or, or different groups, these different tribes that you described in other words, um, where they do have the resources and information, but they don't necessarily do what is best for everyone involved. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, that's another uh, good point to make is, um, you know, some of these very traditional tribes don't want to be disturbed. Um, you know, you see this all over the world, but we've gone to, um, speak to, um, um, some communities that they're very happy with their traditional way. Um, so where is it to us to say, well, we need to bring water. We need to build a school. It's, it's, if they're happy there, then, then namaste enjoy. Um, but kind of where people are getting, um, forced is, is as the development, like the encroachment of the roads happen around these communities, um, they're really getting choked. And then, you know, climate change is another big issue of, of food scarcity starting to to pick up. So having to relocate, um, where you, where you live, but then not having any money to be able to do that. So then you're mm-hmm. seeing people come down to the cities and, and, you know, not having, um, any sort of skill to contribute, so they'll become a laborer, and then, uh, you know, just kind of the problems stem stem from there. Um, what was the original question? Right. So some some people, yeah, don't don't yeah. want to be disturbed, but people are also getting dipl- displaced um, by the government for uh, for a v- variety of reasons, or just because they can't survive in their homeland anymore.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so if if the earthquake um, in its tragedy was. Destructive was it? Was there um, also any kind of um, uh, response from people to maybe be more open minded to different ways? Like, hey, what the way we were building things, or maybe we should have higher standards, or maybe we should do this or that differently? Did you did did the country see any kind of shift in the mindsets of people as a result of their quake in terms of improving things?
1: Definitely. So the the government formed the nepal reconstructive authority so that's where all money was filtered through but they put in different um building standards so Mm -hmm. you know based on the structure you do have to have like tie beams and there does need to be iron rods to make sure that things if it were to shake again it wouldn't collapse so that's been a, a huge benefit and they haven't had any big ones since then but they have consistent shakes and in the new infrastructure has held up so that's been a huge positive for sure yeah
0: was there any part of the country that was disproportionately harmed by the the earthquake in other words was the city infrastructure were the city buildings stronger than rural ones or vice versa or was it kind of the same across the board
1: yeah the city Kathmandu there was quite a bit of damage but the urban environments did hold up better than the um Better than the countryside.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: now, but it's kind of, oh, yeah, right in that middle was where's where the the destruction was the most uh, severe.
0: Yeah. So here you have this monumental tragedy. You're going in uh, with seven thousand dollars to to, to uh, fix the country. Um, you're in over your head. How do you how do you level up yourself and and establish this organization to do more than than you and your seven thousand dollars could.
1: All right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so after that, again, um, uh, made a good connection with uh, with a friend guy named Resham Ball. So he's the he's our in country coordinator, and he's the head he's director of operations on the Nepal side. He's he's a Nepali native. So once I came back to the states, looked at how to get registered as a five hundred one c three. You know what's going to be our mission? How are we going to do it? Um, you know, established all that. Went back to Resham. Um, We also this is also a very, very important thing to do in international nonprofit is we also became registered with the Nepal government. Um, So it's good. So they help with all permits and they really protect Mm. us if if anything um, were to happen. Protect you from who? So we can legally operate in the country if there's any if there's any sort of backlash, if there's. Anything that could go wrong if there's an accident, but also that allows us to get government money as well. So we can partner with the local government to get um, um, subsidies for some of the projects. Um, Okay. So, yeah, then it just then it came, you know, now we're registered, we're fully compliant, let's go. And then, you know, we get our 501c3 in the States, and me thinking, oh, now the money will pour in for aid distribution, <laughs> right? I mean, this is everybody wants a tax write off. So, <laughs> um, and it had kind of grown from there. We did, uh, full time, uh, earthquake resistant homes. We ended up building a school for 700 kids. Um, it, uh, you know, we ha- have a heavy focus on agriculture and helping with employment and income sources, um, public, advancing public health in, in the rural communities, but most of our main focus is on the rural community development. Mm-hmm.
0: So, well, two questions there. One is, um, what, what is the sort of mindset and, uh, money allocation towards education in the country? Um, you know, in America, everyone, you know, it's almost like a right to go to go to uh, elementary, middle and high school. That's something we probably take for granted, but what is it like in Nepal?
1: In terms of percentage of kids who go to school? In
0: terms of just even the school being provided by the state to, to be available to them if they want to go or, or, or mandating it like, like it is in our country, at least to through high school.
1: Yeah. Good question. So how the kind of structure set up is you have government schools and then private schools. Mm -hmm. Um, most of uh, kind of kind of like we have here public and private but government school of course is quite a bit cheaper i can't quite remember it's i don't know 10 bucks a month or something to send the kid to school but the problem is the quality of the education and the access to that education especially in the rural areas um so, for example, some of the places we work in, you have classes that only go up to grade five. So if they mm-hmm. want to continue their education beyond grade five, they'll have to go to a neighboring village, which sometimes is a day's walk away. And then maybe that school only goes up to grade eight. And then they have, yeah. you know, eventually it's moving into the urban environment like Kathmandu if they want to get a higher education. Yeah. Um, so do you have like third graders
0: walking a day's thing to go to school by themselves?
1: Is oh yeah, what, what you'll happens. you'll yeah. um you know, if they have to go that far usually there'll be a hostel or a place they'll stay, but I would say 2 to 3 hours each way is not untypical for the mountains. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Um but then then you have, you know, it's such a um such a survivalist type of lifestyle as we would know it. So a lot of educate, a lot of classroom time is missed when you know the annual harvest comes because they have mm. to help with rice or corn or whatever they might be working on. Yeah. Um. Then you have this ho- horrific uh, monsoon that you know douses the country for three months a year. So a lot yeah. of it's kind of like the hibernation time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You
0: know. Yeah. I was uh, so last year I went to Honduras on a short-term mission trip with uh, two of my kids, and it was to um, in Honduras in a very rural part of the country. And that was one of the things that Honduras prioritized is providing education. And so there were actually, there was actually multiple schools. that were in, they were very small and simple, but they were in these rural villages. Um, And, uh, and, and they were, you know, nice for what they were, but the government was at least putting money into that and, and then placing them in their, in their locations. So
1: that, that was a, a good response to the earthquake, actually, Jason. You make a good point of a lot of money went into rebuilding schools from, from the mm. government level. So you do see um nice facilities, uh newer, nicer facilities in the urban area. So the government has made a huge effort to make a platform for education. I think just um again, back to the geography and cultural differences. Yeah um i think it's not as good as it as it could be but we could say that about america as well <laughs> yeah yeah
0: so why why the poor in the remote um villages so i mean you could there's probably a lot of need there you could pick a lot of different missions um is it simply that those are the ones that were being neglected or needed the most help or was it something else
1: yeah you hit it on the head it was you know our board of directors myself and then our operations team it was like if we're going to do this Let's get to the areas who need it the most, Um, which is tough to go through because as a Westerner showing up in Kathmandu, you know, they need a ton of help. But once you get even farther out there, it's like, you know, one village that we're working in now to help uh, with our water distribution project of building the infrastructure to bring water to every home, you know, they're still walking a couple hours a day just to collect water. Um, mm-hmm. and that's one trip. So if you run out of water, you gotta, you know, you gotta do it a couple more times. Um, you know, so let's, let's help the people that still don't have access to some of the, some of the basics. Yeah.
0: So help, help us understand a little bit more about your mission. Um, you're, you're trying to help them to, to, to transform into these thrive what you've described as thriving communities. So you're not just there to sort of hand them food and, keep giving them stuff it's it's really to create a self sustaining community um, from what I understand, so tell us more about that what that looks like and and why you took that approach
1: sure, yeah, so <clears throat> you know speaking to the rural community development project that we're in um you know we first went out there thinking we would build another school, um but once we got out there, it was <laughs> like, well goodness, they don't have the big six that i that I just mentioned. So back to building that relationship and asking these communities, and we, we looked at dozens and dozens of just what do you want and what do you need and can we help? Um, so this this one area in particular, it was like the water is our biggest issue. Um, mm-hmm. Certain sources have gone dry because actually the earthquake shifted the water table and cut off um, reliable water sources. Um, but they're like, we need to somehow get water into this village. And then from there, we can, you know, think about other things like public health and education and, and all that stuff. Um, but uh, let me see, can't remember where I was going to go. But yeah, you know, starting, starting at that local level, um, but really, really listening to them in terms of, of, of what they want and what they need. Yeah.
0: And so the self-sustaining dynamic, tell us more about that.
1: Right. So you know, it, it, nonprofit is a funny business too because your um your your model is to give away money and then also work your way out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> um. So like I always say, it's their communities. It's it's they're the ones who are doing it, and they're the ones who are going to um you know implement all these things. But they are relying on Elevate Nepal to provide the resources with um you know skills and um uh, finances. But how do we make sure that these are functional systems after Elevate Nepal leaves? And that's going to, once again, take a lot of time. So what we do is, one, it's all a a community-formed committee who makes all the decisions. So it's run by one person of each household. So they make the decision of what we're going to um, implement and how we're going to execute it. And they help to get us uh, permits from the government who kind of oversees all this stuff. Um, But then we do a lot of vocational training. So our engineer and our main builder is out there. So if we're not in the village um, and a pipe breaks, they have um, the knowledge to be able to fix that. So this is a common problem that I see all over Nepal that may be simple in our minds, but it's, you see, you see a problem that is so minute, like an elbow, a plastic elbow that broke. And all that needs to happen is somebody just needs to glue it together. But no one was trained at the local level to do that. And there was no money in a rainy day fund to be able to fix it. So you have these, these entire water systems or plumbing systems that uh, are non-functional because nobody took the time to actually train somebody.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's such a small problem that at least for us, we think, oh, I could just fix that in a few minutes or a few an hour, and right. um, and yet
1: they they lack whatever they need to be able to to do that same thing.
0: Um, and you
1: can't, right, right, and you can't go to Home Depot and you can't call a plumber. You know, you're a day's walk from from the road, so it's almost like I describe it as somebody comes into your town in Atlanta and is going to install a solar panel on uh, a solar system on your house, mm-hmm. um, but they have no. Uh, they have no service maintenance program to help you. So once, once your solar system breaks, what are you going to do? You might get up there and kind of wiggle some wires around, hoping it starts to function again, but ultimately you don't have the skills to, to repair it yourself. And there's no repair guy you can call. So the system is a bust, you know, just apply that to some of the infrastructure projects that we're working on.
0: Yeah. So is that, does that mean that, um, which problem do you solve there? Do you do you build in a simpler way so that they can uh, access and fix things, or do you have a better supply chain system so that they have the tools they need to be able to to um to do what they need to do?
1: You yeah, number direct, two direct
0: directions. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, using the best material that we can find is important just for the functionality and longevity of the of the system, but. Making sure people have the connections that they need, you know, if they can't fix it at that local level, if they don't have the spare part um, that they can call our main plumber and he can send out a team to diagnose that. Um, But it all comes back to another big thing about the sustainable part of it. it all comes back to money. Right. So even if they do need to buy, you know, buy material to fix something and they're so poor, it's how are they going to have the money to do it? So there is government funding that'll help with these things. So the government can subsidize with that. And that's all the importance of building these committees and making sure everything is very transparent. Elevate Nepal is helping at the moment to subsidize this. But the other thing is everybody's paying a small uh, monthly fee for the use of the infrastructure. Um, So it's so small, but it is going into a kitty. That they will, um, you know, end up using in the future to repair these things. It's so small right now, but it's like you got to start from somewhere and build on there. Yeah. Hopefully, that if something goes wrong, we're we're us or the government is not um, dependent, or they're not dependent yeah. on us. So
0: that fund is designed to 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 make them self sustaining from a financial
1: standpoint. Yep, exactly. So you have you have the skills, you have the, the finances, um, and then you just have the buy in and empowerment at that local level. So then, you know, nobody's, yeah. we're, we're not needed. So we've worked ourselves out of a job. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're talking uh, uh, years of years of doing this. Yeah.
0: So do you focus then on a single community and you get it to that point and then you go to the next one? Or do you have multiple that you're working with at the same time?
1: kind of the the one that i'm speaking about now is you know we're year in in year 2 or 3 of this so this is going to kind of become our model this has been one that we've spearheaded ourselves but other communities we work with they might they're a little bit more advanced so every community it's a bit um it's a bit different depending on where you are. And that's just, you know, maybe they've already have this established, they know what they need and, and all things like that, or they have the committee already, already ready to go. Um, and then we can kind of help in different capacities.
0: Yeah. So um, what, what are other aspects of your nonprofit that, that you're doing or, or working with that you haven't already described or explored
1: Let's or, we, see, have uh,
0: we, or have we done it all?
1: Yeah, <laughs> the other- uh, two, two other one of our initiatives. So our our our, our initiatives we do employment, education, public health, and uh, infrastructure. So mm. I'm kind of describe that. The, I guess the other two things we do is um, another big problem in Nepal is out migration. So um you know a ton of people going to the cities and abroad to seek education and employment. Um so a third of Nepal's GDP comes from remittance. Another ten percent come, or ten or twelve percent comes from tourism. So only f- almost fifty percent of the money in Nepal is generated by a foreign income source. So a big thing that we try to do is to curb this out migration, which will help preserve um, cultures and family structures, is um, is is to help using readily available resources to provide that income source. So what is Nepal's most uh, valuable resource is its um, fertile soil? You know, Nepal doesn't manufacture anything um, like metals and, and things that that we might know in the West, but its soil in the middle belt is very, very rich. Um, so one of the big things that we've done is working with an agriculture school to teach the next generation about sustainable organic agriculture, but also tying the economics into that. Um, in another so tying on to that is a, a big cash crop that we've been working with is coffee. So I've been working with the coffee farmers since my first trip in 2011. And then we import the green beans to America. And then 100% of the uh, profits are returned to support those communities. So generating an income source right there to kind of help curb this out migration, but not bringing in foreign materials, like not setting up a factory and and kind of all these things, using stuff in-house.
0: So what kind of... um... I mean, what resources does Nepal have, you know, in its own on its own in its own geography in terms of farming lands or even natural resources or or um, trades and so on, like the coffee um, in terms of I assume they also did they just grow it or did they do steps of the process beyond the growing at all?
1: Everything. So, you know, kind of from seed to export of the green bean, and then we import it here and roast it and and sell it. But coffee is becoming a lot more popular in Kathmandu. So you're seeing coffee shops Mm. pop up um, where they're selling a lot more of the product in country, which is great. You know, they're generating their own revenue source right there. Um, But in terms of the resources that Nepal has, it's again, that the middle belt, the soil is so rich. Um, most of that coming from water. It's a very water abundant country. So, but it's a little bit like the desert where you have feast or famine with 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 the rains. Um, so you're making diversions and having access to water. Um, through natural sources. Um, also also helps with the the agriculture side of it. Um, but but land land and land and water are its two most valuable resources.
0: Okay, and being landlocked, how does that? uh, limit the
1: country? It's everything is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, airplane tickets in and out and shipping anything is expensive. Um, you know, to, 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 to do commerce, I guess I, I would say that's, that's what really, um, that's what makes everything expensive. But if you were to get come out with your commerce to get out to a port. Your closest one is Calcutta. So it would have to move through the dilapidated roads of Nepal and then down into India and then to a port and kind of out from there, which could take anywhere up to a week or 10 days just to move a truck from, from A to B.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Um, so, yeah, yeah, I imagine that's even more the case, the further you get away from the city and into the rural and the mountains and the top of Mount Everest is probably the hardest place to get to there. (laughs) It
1: it, it is. It is. I think they're, they're (laughs) sending people up in drones now. I don't know what they're doing.
0: (laughs) Now, is that a, is that a positive thing that there's so much tourism and, and the Everest attraction in terms of bringing money to the country, or is it kind of create its own problems as well?
1: Hmm. Um, the revenue boost is great um you know it does supply thousands tens of thousands of people with seasonal jobs um the impacts though are very clearly seen in terms of just the waste and The waste generated human waste and plastics and kind of all these things, they've done a lot better. There's been a lot of more rules and regulations around um, in the tourism industry to help kind of clean that up. But it goes back to some of the basics of not having those systems or infrastructure in place that if you got a team that's, you know, a seven-day walk from a road and they're drinking a bunch of stuff out of plastic bottles, you know, it's not a garbage man to come by and collect it. Um, Mm -hmm. so how are you going to kind of get all those out of there? And then once you do, where is it going to go? Um, you don't Mm -hmm. really have a sorting facility and all that. Um, I, it's great for people to come to Nepal and help boost the, boost the local economy. Um, I I think I'll leave it there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now are there, what you're doing, you're helping this country. You're, um, you were born in Rochester, live in Flagstaff now where I'm Mm -hmm. from. Um, are there other organizations that are, that are doing things as well? Are you, uh, kind of one of many or, or are you one of the only ones doing this work?
1: There are many, I don't know the number at one point in time, I looked it up, but there are, there are many nonprofits working in Nepal from, you know, small grassroots stuff up to, um, you know, up to government level working, working with embassies, um but of those who are doing that very few are actually registered um so the main point i would make on all of that is just making sure that everything is compliant and and you are registered with that government cuz Things can just go a little bit um, funny, or, or there could be misunderstandings if they're not. A lot of people are in there with great intentions and doing um, fantastic work, um, but everything needs to be very transparent and it's so important to be working with those local communities and the government. Um, so just just so everything is very clear. But yes, yeah. there are there are there are quite a few other nonprofits working there.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the dynamics, um, when it comes to just having an international nonprofit, um, both in terms of you're here in America half the year and you're there half the year and, um, I'm the legal layers and fundraising. Tell, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I think I wrote in a grant once, you know, we have a myriad of challenges, um, you know, just the physical time it takes for me to get from here to there, um, you know to get to some of these projects might take me almost a week you know from where i sit right now here in flagstaff um but again building building a strong team on the ground in nepal which again i'm trying to work myself out of a job where i'm not needed and we can you know support a sustainable income for everybody there you know have a livelihood Probably one of the you know, biggest challenges working in um, international is dealing is understanding the rules and regulations of both sides of the globe. Um, so everything we have in the states, we also have over in Nepal um, because we're just two fully registered entities. we got a board of directors on the state side, board of directors on the Nepal side, um, you know, lawyers, accountants on each side of the globe, too. So your, your funding needs to be doubled. <laughs> Kind of for 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 those sort of things um, so yeah there's just and then cultures and uh, different things that uh, you know the East and the West mixing together um, it, it, it's a beautiful thing to share um, uh, cultures and languages across continents, but um, you know you, you have to be sensitive with with some of the things you're you're working on as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, so what's it like in that sense to learn a second first language in the sense of culturally, you know, using language is like a cultural idea. What is it like to to learn another culture um, in a way that you can understand it from the way
1: that they see it? Does that make sense? It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's wonderful and great, but you have to have the right mindset you have to be very open to things and you have to let your you know my comfort zone is very wide but you have to also kind of let your guard down in certain ways um you know your creature comforts have to disappear and you you have to adapt and do things the way um you know they do at the local level because you don't want to insult anybody or you don't want to um you know do something wrong is even as simple as one story that I love of of a name who I'll admit (laughs) omit is um, he was in a meeting with a, a government official and they were trying to come to an agreement on a financial thing and he turned and he crossed his legs and now his foot is pointed at um the main guy that he's speaking to now here in the states we cross our legs and you know whatever it might be he crosses legs his foot is pointed directly at the guy that is a huge sign of disrespect i mean it's mm-hmm. like if you point your feet towards somebody or or an altar or a picture of the dalai lama something like that i mean th- that's up there with one of the worst things that you can do <laughs> it's like flipping but, them off
0: or something in a way
1: Right, yeah. right yeah just i mean just about <laughs> so um you know kind of learn and if people are very nice most of the time you know yeah. they, they they explain it to you and and whatnot, but you have to um you're never going to learn these things if you just don't take the time to to to, to be a part of it <laughs> to get amongst it yeah. you know
0: so it sounds no. like uh it's not a place for the prideful <laughs> humility
1: <laughs> required <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's, but it's, you know, and that's an interesting thing. I absolutely love Nepal. I mean, it is, it has stolen my heart. There's, there's a, um, a saying amongst expats there that you come for the mountains, but you return for the people. And Mm. that is, that is a hundred percent true. But even someone working in, in my, um, you know, job role with another nonprofit or, or with the government, um, a lot of them still struggle to spend long um, stretches in Nepal because it, it is very uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, you know, just the roads there, you're getting thrown around in Jeeps and um, you know, trying to things don't happen at the rapid pace that we're used to in the West. It can get a uh, very uh very frustrating so you know even other nonprofits that we work closely with if they're out of the states or the uk you know i hear a lot of them who are in my position to say i can only do about a week or two a year um, mm, and you yeah. know it's fair enough but making sure they have a, a a structure in place to to be able to do things when they're absent but it, it um in nepal they, they all they always say garocha," which means everything is difficult <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because um,
0: um, the the barriers like we've been talking about with geography or infrastructure, cultural or language, they're just a life is difficult barrier, and um, and so if you want to help people there, you have to descend into that difficulty.
1: Yep, you have to. You have to. Yeah, get into it and in um, really embrace it and accept it. Um, yeah, that's, you know, especially when you do work with, um, um, just things that take so much time, you know, of like opening a bank account. Uh, I opened up a new bank account a couple of years ago. It took like six weeks for me to do this. You know, now <laughs> yeah. we can, in the States, we can do it online, but it's just, again, systems that aren't fully functional or make sense that, I it's it's I mean literally it can drive drive a westerner insane. But you have to just I mean embrace it and say, well, okay, I'll come back again tomorrow with this other piece of paperwork. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, conducting business there is is oh my goodness, it's it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, now, why why do you ha- uh, come back to the states? Why not just be there all the time? Why come back to Flagstaff and and uh, operate there? what's what's
1: the purpose of that that'd be nice um i'm my role is i'm i'm involved with every aspect of elevate nepal from the fundraising here in the states to the project implementation on the ground in nepal so um i'm stretched like a rubber band a lot um but i absolutely love it coming back to the states um What a privilege I do have to be able to come back and um, have a wonderful place to live and see family and all that great stuff. Um, But, you know, business duties on this side of with fundraising and um, admin and communications and uh, kind of all that stuff still requires a bit of my time.
0: Yeah. So what what are the lessons, you know, when you think about this, what, nine year journey now uh, or longer if you go back before the 2000 earthquake? um, this decade long journey or more, what, what are some of the things that you've learned or that where you've really grown as a person and a leader?
1: Patience. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, but you know, I, I still, every morning I pray for patience, you know, I want, I, I, I need more of it. I think this is something we're all, all looking for in our life. Um, you know, I get a lot, jason people say well you know you've helped so many people um but i always flip it to be what the country of nepal the people have have done for me um and this was recognized by an older friend in flagstaff a few years back he goes you know think of where you've gone spiritually and uh, have, have grown as a human being over your time of working in nepal so yes i'm very proud of all of our donors and everybody coming together to um make him have our mission impactful and help so many people in Nepal, but what they have done for me, I can't even I, I don't even know the words to start with it. Um it's yeah. been it's been a very uh a beautiful and uh rewarding uh journey for myself.
0: Yeah it's a mutual thing. It's not um it's not a one way relationship. It's it's and, and this idea with this the podcast is called Share Life. And that's derived from my personal mission statement, which is to share life. And part of the idea of that is it's to give and to receive it's to learn and to teach it's It's the mutual, um, connection between the relationship that we have with each other. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. And I, I, I love that Jason and, and to, you know, to do that in our own communities here in Atlanta or Flagstaff. Um, um, but to be able to share that across cultures and continents is, 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 is really a a fantastic thing. Um, so when we do have volunteers or people come over to Nepal, I'm always welcoming, just come and see it and 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 um, just talk to people and learn from them and have them learn from you. It's, it's just a great way to share and make us all uh, uh, better people.
0: Yeah. So if someone, um, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits, there's a lot of international nonprofits. There are a lot of countries that need help. There are a lot of people that need help. So how uh, obviously you're trying to serve a specific need and you need help to help those people what's your message to those people that might be interested in volunteering giving um, or simply sharing sharing the message that you have?
1: It's, you know, there are so many needs all over the world, as as, as you touched on, and I commend anybody who is doing humanitarian work uh, in any capacity, you know, my heart has fallen in Nepal, and I've dedicated my life to this work. Um, so I always invite anybody to join our mission, whether that be through volunteering or making a financial contribution or simply sharing our story through a social media platform or our email communications. Um, but kind of the thing that separates us, I believe, from other nonprofits, I'll, I'll speak specifically about Nepal, is we are very, very open and transparent about our um about our mission and where your donor dollars will go. I believe there's a big disconnect in the um, nonprofit uh, philanthropy world anyway, between your, uh, your donor or your, your philanthropist, the implementing party, which would be Elevate Nepal, and then the population served. The implementing party, which is the nonprofit, they're the ones who need to kind of bridge that gap between everybody. And we do the absolute best we can. I think we can do better in some ways, but that's where everybody feels connected. And we're doing all of this together. So, you know, when I invite people to be a part of our mission, it's we're doing this together, whatever you want, come to Nepal, whatever you need from us to show the journey of your donor dollars of the people that are impacted. i I'm very happy to uh, share and, um, and talk about those things.
0: Yeah. So let's fast forward. It's a year from now, January 5th, 2025. What's the story you tell about 2024 in terms of your mission?
1: I'll be retired and, you know, just, uh, (laughs) just, just laughing away. Um, Great. Very good question. Something I haven't thought of. Um, Probably um, this is going to be a big year for us. We're going to service our third Um, Village with water, electricity, um, and new toilets. And that was kind of our goal when we started three years ago. So by the time this whole thing is done, um, three huge villages um, will, three villages that are very spread out will have all those services impacting over 600 people. Um, And so that'll be a great highlight for us. We're doing our medical camp again, which will service a couple thousand more people. um, And then turning our focus. On that, um, on that community I'm, I've been mostly speaking about of can we get a school in there? Can we uh, improve uh, the, uh, can we get a health post in there? You know, what is kind of our next development for that area? Um, So in a year from now, looking back, uh, hopefully we've accomplished all that. Um, Hopefully we've also gained some new um, supporters, which of course we always need because, you know, when we first started to where we are now, our budgets have increased uh, significantly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to share that you haven't had a chance to do so?
1: not not really um i think just kind of my ending message really it's i'm i'm this has been the opportunity of my life to work with the people of nepal i i don't i wake up every day and don't know what i have done to be so lucky um but and i have the best job in the world because i get to go live with these communities and uh build relationships and get to know them on a very very personal level but none of this would be possible without the generosity of our donor base. And they're really the ones that are making all of this happen. So once again, you know, I invite anybody to be a part of our story and join us in unbelievably grateful um, for the continued support of our uh, very loyal uh, donor base.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing. Uh, how can people connect? Uh, what's your website? Are you on social media?
1: Yep. ElevateNepal.org. Um but Google Elevate Nepal, you'll find us. Um, and then social media, just put it into any of the search browsers is, is Elevate Nepal. And there's, a, and I also welcome anybody to contact me directly. There's there's my email on the website and reach out at any time for anything. As you can see, I uh, like Nepal and I like to talk about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate you sharing uh, with us today and helping us to learn about Nepal and its uh, the country and the people
1: you're serving and and the things you're doing to help them thrive. Well, thank you, Jason, and you are welcome in Nepal anytime. So start planning your trip with your wife and five kids. <laughs> All right, <laughs> sounds good. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks so much um, for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.